lecture today is first to try to explain why and how council housing became such a popular politically acceptable form of tenure seen as the answer to the housing problem <coughs> and then later that was really from the 1920s and later from the 1970s why it as it were fell out of favor in fact really we had a reversal um, policy because in a way it's quite extraordinary that Britain had more council housing as a percentage of its total housing than any other developed country. In 1971, uh, one third of all households lived in council housing. But in no country has the system of public housing been dismantled so quickly and so systematically as in Britain. So the percentage of people now living in council housing has gone from 33% to less than 7%. So one of the things I want to do in this talk is to think about the uh, way of looking at things as path dependence. What I mean by that is we have a long history of council housing in this country and I'll cover some of that. But I want to focus on the two crucial periods where the decisions were taken that really shaped the future for many years after that. First the 1920s where there was a debate about how we should provide for housing need that resulted in the creation of the model modern council housing system. And then there was a new debate that emerged in the 1970s of whether that system was still working or appropriate. And by the 1980s, under Mrs. Thatcher, a new paradigm emerged which basically emphasized owner occupation at the expense of all other tenures and resulted in the policy of selling off as many council houses as possible either to its tenants or transferring them to housing associations. And I suppose at the end we want to raise the question really, have we reached another turning point where our new paradigm also hasn't really been successful in solving our housing problems. So when I look at these path dependencies, I think I also want to question some of the myths about uh, why, how we might explain what happened in terms of housing in Britain. So traditionally when we think about why council housing was started, there's a kind of um, belief that this was something that was inevitable given the very bad housing conditions in the, in the 19th century in terms of uh, the way people most, live, most people lived, especially working class tenants. A growing sense that the government had to take social responsibility for poor conditions in housing and other areas. And a particular problem of a wartime shortage of housing. And again, there's a kind of conventional wisdom that by the time we reach the point where we start selling council houses, everyone wanted to be owner-occupiers, council housing had become too expensive, and it was now seen as poorly designed uh, with unpopular council estates that people didn't want to live on. And so I'd like to just start by questioning these myths, because I think they don't really allow enough of the, what we call history contingent factors. It didn't have to work out that way. I don't think we should look at anything as inevitable. So in terms of the original idea, why did we have council housing? Well, it may be that there uh, was a recognition of the need to do something about bad housing conditions, but we had reports and concerns about bad housing conditions in Britain for many years for nearly a hundred years before we decided to intervene in the housing market. Uh, 
And again, it was true that events were precipitated by World War I, but that doesn't explain why in Britain, as opposed to most other countries, the consensus that we should intervene and build uh, social housing for rent continued for 50 years. And I think particularly what the myth doesn't encompass is that a lot of these changes weren't just a passive result of observation events, but active participants, active participation by council tenants and other political actors in changing, as it were, the reality of what, how, how housing was, both was perceived and how it's going to be delivered. And I think, on, again, there are a number of myths, I think, in terms of selling council housing. One of them I might call is the architectural fallacy that basically it's the design of houses that determines how they're going to be used and that council housing was inherently badly designed um, high-rise flats that were unsuitable for families and had broken down lifts and rubbish in the corridors. Now, the reality is most council housing were not high-rise tower blocks and, you know, this view uh, became, I think, much more powerful than the reality. It's also true that owner-occupation had many other reasons other than the, than the desire of people to leave council housing, why it started to rise. And it was already, before we started selling council housing, rising quickly. And again, the other, I think, the interesting myth is whether, in the end, it was an economic benefit to the government to sell council housing, as was argued at the time. Because what we now have is a system where housing benefit has risen to a much higher level than the original subsidies to building council housing were. And it's something where, in a sense, it, it will continue to rise as long as we housing costs continue to go up. And it produces tremendous strain now, both on government finances and on tenants who are being squeezed out in terms of how much they can actually will be given for housing benefit. So I think there's a broader approach that's needed. One is, as I was trying to say, bring in political economy. It's not just about social policy. It's not just about politics, but it's a combination of a number of these factors. I think one of the key things that I want to stress in this talk is the relationship between tenures. We can't really explain what happened to council housing, why it became such a dominant and important form of tenure, unless we look at what happened to private rented sector, and we can't really explain what happened later without looking at owner occupation. And the other thing I think isn't included enough in this conversation is the key role that housing finance plays in all this, the way that housing is financed, both the building of housing and uh, uh, subsidizing housing and mortgages for housing. And this, in many ways, played a very decisive role in these developments and one which often isn't uh, as explicit or as well known as it should be. I mean, I think there's also a broader economic and social context for all these developments. And I think also, again, we don't look enough at the actual experience and aspiration of tenants, landlords, and homeowners and what they actually experienced and want. So just to take a very broad overview of what happened in the last hundred years, um, I think I'm going to talk about the first trend initially, but there are three dramatic trends you can notice. From this. First of all, if you look at the red, private renting was absolutely the dominant form of tenure in Britain before World War I, and no one had any real expectations that that would change. That was how it had been uh, for hundreds of years, well, certainly since uh, urbanization began. Private renting rapidly declined in the century, and so in a way, what people were predicting, certainly in the 1970s, that private renting would completely disappear as a tenure by this 21st century. 
Meanwhile, we saw a rather sharp increase in council housing, which I'll talk about, between essentially the 30s and the 70s. And we had a gradual but then increasing uh, uh, growth in owner occupation for the second half of the century, essentially. So I want to talk in terms about these three different trends, really. Um, I think the first and most important thing to say is to really think about private renting. Because the, as a dominant tender, this really, I think, there so, there was a tenure which had so many problems for the people living it, generally. Um, and I think the, this is uh, Edwardian London, two different views. Um, the contrast between rich and poor in Edwardian Britain was immense, and it was particularly immense in terms of both land ownership and housing. Um, so we still had uh, vast areas of very bad back-to-back -back housing with no sanitation, and we also had a situation where tenants really had no rights. The majority of tenants actually were forced to move every year when the rents were renegotiated, uh, normally on St. George's Day, um, and they had very little redress to do anything about the bad conditions. Um, and very little redress if, for any reason, they were unemployed or got behind on the rent. Um, now, we had a century of legislation, or nearly, that, were that was trying to tackle this in what I'd say unsuccessful ways. I mean, there were attempts to limit bad housing, attempts to control or ban multiple occupation lodgings, there were attempts to clear the slums. There was an initial act which at least allowed sublocal authorities to build. And there was also the model that this could all be done by philanthropists, that rich um, philanthropists could actually fund, uh, the, find the solution to the lack of housing for tenants. And some of these dwellings, Peabody Trust, Guinness Trust, probably you're familiar with, still exist in London. Um, the ability of councils to actually build much council housing was extremely limited. The only one that did was, uh, to any extent, was the LCC. This is one of their very well-known estates, still exists today. But in total, probably about 20 to 30,000 council homes were built in this entire period before World War I, in contrast to the one million that were built after World War I in the first 20 years and the additional five million that were built after that. So we had a complete step change in what was happening. But many people start with this, uh, with looking at the first housing act uh, that made essentially, not just enabled, but uh, ensured that councils did have to build public housing. That's the Addison Act. But before I get to that, I really want to start with the Glasgow rent strike of 1915 and the rent acts that emerged from that. Because in my view, if it hadn't been for that uh, political action, which was very much inspired by the Glasgow Labour Party, we wouldn't necessarily have had the extent of council house building we had in the interwar years. Because essentially this was the culmination of a hundred year battle between landlords and tenants in urban Britain to try to improve conditions. Um, and because of the particular situation of wartime, the Glasgow Labour Party was able to mobilize these tenants in a way that had gave them much more political power than they had before. 
So as I was saying, I mean, the tenant situation, this is London, but Glasgow, in a sense, had an even worse situation because it had many tenements, one-room tenements, um, and it became very overcrowded. House building had already begun stopping in the late Edwardian years. So we had a boom, and some of you remember in London, the late 19th century, of course, there was a very boom in building. The building began tailing off and stopping by the beginning of the 20th century. And you had still very sharp growth in population, you had very difficult conditions, uh, and you had uh, tremendous poverty in these areas. So in 1915, uh, this all was exacerbated. When, after, when the First World War started, the government needed to expand its munitions production. This was World War I, the first total war. And as a result of that, um, people, uh, uh, the government decided, uh, particularly as the war started, that there was this terrible problem. There weren't enough shells for the Western Front. If any of you have seen the movie 1917, you'll be familiar on the sort of volume of total, you know, total war and what that did to the landscape. So there were the, all the government's efforts were now directed to increasing not just the size of the army, but all the munitions, shells, tanks, all the cities of war that they needed. And the result of that was the big industrial centers like Glasgow, like the Woolwich Arsenal, Birmingham, Sheffield, all swelled with population as new munitions factories were either built or expanded. And that in turn affected the housing situation. There were no new housing was being built or had been built. And the uh, number of workers coming in was, was great. Also, of course, there were a number of people, a large number of people now had been uh, had enlisted in the army and were at the front and were not able to um, take part in uh, essentially the, um, you, you were given a very small allowance to pay for, for their um, soldiers allowance for their families at home to cover their basic needs. So in June uh, 1915, uh, the, the Labour Party in Glasgow had been concerned about this issue for some time, but the, what really lit the spark was that in June 1915, um, a woman named Mrs. McHugh and her seven children were brought up to the sheriff court uh, facing eviction because they had fallen behind with the rent. It was the second rent increase that they had faced. Uh, and she told the court that uh, her husband was the person was summoned. He couldn't come because he was lying wounded uh, in a field hospital in France. Two older sons were also at the front. The five children who were ill uh, were too young to do anything. The, her husband's union offered to pay the rent, but she was ordered to be evicted in 48 hours. Now, this was something that happened every day to tenants in Glasgow, but because of the war and because uh, the Labour Party, the Independent Labour Party as it was then, was making an issue of it. This sparked a huge controversy and rebellion. And so some of the signs, if you can see up here, um, uh, my father is fighting in France, we are fighting the Huns at home. So this was very much framed in the idea that landlords were the Huns who were the barbarians who were also attacking the good British soldiers and British working men. And that was a very effective plea. And as you can see, uh, children came out, but not only that, um, this was a mobilization in some ways uh, uh, quite unique of women activists um, 
So basically, the women's Glasgow Women's Housing Association, which was essentially a branch of the ILP, organized rent strikes where tenants would withhold any increases. The landlords were very organized. They really thought this was, had been an opportunity to take advantage of the war and raise the rents. And they were very surprised by the degree of opposition. And um, the opposition took a very interesting form. For example, the women barricaded the tenements with their prams to prevent the landlords going, uh, getting in. And when they tried to get in, they stood on the balconies and threw flour over them to stop them coming up as well. So they had sort of developed their own uh, activism. And uh, the very large group of tenants uh, who were on strike were called Mrs. Barber's Army. That's because the organizers of this were so, some very politically active women, many of whom had been active in the suffragette movement for this, like Helen Crawford on the right, who later became a leading peace activist and indeed eventually joined the Communist Party. Mary Barber, who was kind of the symbol of the tenants uh, movement and led the demonstrations, also became an active labor councillor, as did Agnes Dolan, who was the other leading woman organizer, who also later married Patrick Dolan, who became the Lord Provost of Glasgow. Um, but it was, a, in a way, a new kind of struggle, which we hadn't really seen before, where women, for the first time, because they were the householders and the men were either at the front, at the at factories took uh, an active role. And by the end, by within six months, something like 20 or 30,000 tenants were on strike, which was for some of the districts, a very uh, substantial number. But it wasn't just the number, it was the political mobilization that was worrying the government. So this is the kind of shell factories that we're talking about. That's a visit by the king to boost morale for people to make more shells to uh, go on the Western Front. But the crucial, the crucial event here really was when the workers in a number of the munitions plants decided to join the women strikers and go on demonstrations to the sheriff's court to try to block this taking place. And that very much brought the attention of this guy, David Lloyd George, who at that time was the Minister of Musici Munitions, uh, who really was trying very much for various means to up the rate of uh, production and really, at his urging, the government decided to introduce national rent control in 1915. But what's interesting is this was never repealed in Britain until 1970s, very different from many other countries. And why was that? I think the difference is the landlords had really lost their political power in the interwar period. Um, both middle-class and working-class tenants didn't really want to get rent control ended. The initial idea after the war was people could, the landlords could raise their rents 40% if they did repairs, but there was no means of, of enforcing that they would do the repairs. So after one of the uh, conservative uh, ministers of health who's in charge of housing was defeated at a by-election, even the conservatives decided that completely opposing uh, rent control was a bad idea. Um, and additionally, I mean, the landlords uh, were uh, put under the cost because slums, when slum clearance became widespread, uh, legislation said that if houses were declared unfit for human habitation and vast areas were so designated, the only compensation landlords would get was the site value. Their houses were not worth anything if they're unfit for human habitation. 
So investment in new building of housing, particularly uh, rented housing for working class people, really stopped. Additionally, I think the uh, economics of how you financed housing changed. Before there were landlords, actually, and small investors and small building sites were kind of the same people. In local areas, people thought safe as houses, put your money in houses if you have, were middle class. After the war, there are many less risky investments, particularly because of the huge cost of the war, the government had to borrow billions and billions of pounds and had to offer four and then five percent interest, which was as good or a higher return than you would get uh, trying to uh, own and then let out a house, and it was a kind of much safer investment. So the whole economics of how landlords uh, could be funded changed completely, and it's important that the Rent Act also limited mortgage, mortgages, so it also prevented mortgage rates from going up. So again, that made it difficult for the mortgage lenders who wanted to offer higher returns were not allowed to. So I think the political consensus emerged, and even through various inquiries in the 30s, that private renting could not provide adequate working class housing, and so that the state, one way or another, did have to do something. But I think this is absolutely crucial in explaining why in Britain this view carried on, whereas in most countries this was seen as just a wartime emergency. So looking at how now how that was in the, in the end interpreted, in the 1920s we had three different models of how to create state housing to tackle the housing shortage. One liberal, one conservative, and one labor. So these are the first two. Christopher Addison, the liberal Minister of Health in the coalition government, uh, produced the Addison Act of 1919, um, which uh, was the, the, what's, in a sense, the beginning of council housing. Neville Chamberlain, who became the Minister of Housing in 1923, uh, is called the Minister of Health. Health now, because of the idea that this was all a public health problem, incorporated housing, and even up until Nye Bevan, it was still the Ministry of Health. Um, he had a different view, but also based on his experience in Birmingham, where they had actually had a lot of municipal activism. So, with these two people, there were, here, were the two, here were their uh, experiments in council housing. The Addison Act, 1919, was a crash program to replace the housing that essentially was felt hadn't been built during the war. 500,000 homes in three years with a system where the Treasury basically was going to subsidize everything above a small amount contributed by local authorities. Um, and then the program was supposed to end when they'd done that. The problem was, and it was also the first time we had the design standards for council housing, Tudor Walters, which was quite important. And we see many of the examples of that housing uh, today. The problem was that there was no cost control, and this turned out to be a period of vast post-war inflation. The price of a house and the price of building a house tripled in two years from the reasonable total of 300 pounds a house to the shocking total of 1,000 pounds a house. And as a result of the government austerity cuts, in fact the first big austerity program in Britain was the Gettys Act of 1922, one of the consequences of that was this program was completely scrapped. The Conservatives came in in 1923 and Neville Chamberlain's idea was we should subsidize private builders 
to build these missing houses. And so he created a system where councils could give subsidies to private builders to build either to rent or to buy. And the councils were not allowed to build unless they could show that the private builders were not meeting the demand for housing. But under this system, very few private rented working class houses were built, as I was explaining why. So I think the real architect of council housing was this guy, John Wheatley, who was both the leader of the Glasgow Labour Party during the rent strike and the first Labour Minister of Housing. And clearly his strategy was very explicit. It wasn't that by mistake rent control was introduced and people stopped building private rent houses. It was very much the explicit policy of the Labour Party then that we don't want private rented housing, it doesn't work, so if we can show that it's not going to continue, that will give the case for building council housing. And he had a very ambitious program uh, which really transformed the idea of what council housing should be. So uh, Wheatley's, in Wheatley's Act, he aimed at building two and a half million council houses as opposed to the 30,000 had built for the entire previous period before the war. And he started by bringing together the building unions and the building employers in a, uh, a, a series of meetings at the Ministry of Health to agree if we're going to expand council housing, we have to expand the workforce, we have to expand the building industry, and we have to have, they have to have guaranteed work, and we have to guarantee that the building uh, trades can be expanded. And also, uh, another issue that had come up, there was going to be limitation regulation of building materials to ensure that building materials were provided, but the, that didn't cause price escalation. And Wheatley again negotiated with the local authorities to create a subsidy system which created incentives for local authorities to build. In the Wheatley system, rates, government subsidy, and rent all contributed, but the local authorities, the more they could reduce housing costs, would get their rates reduced the government subsidy being fixed. So there's a tremendous incentive for local authorities to big, build at scale smaller you know, a, a, a large group of houses, and they were guaranteed the previous subsidies had never lasted as long as 40 years. So the idea was this was going to be a long-term investment. And Wheatley wanted a 15-year housing program, uh, which built up from the current total of building, which had been about 80,000, 70, 80,000, to 225,000. Uh, council houses here. Now that's a higher total than was ever achieved in Britain in the uh, post-war years as well and indeed it's a higher total than the total amount of public and private housing we built in the UK in the last 20 years. So it's a very ambitious program. Um, now it was derailed to some extent by the depression after in the uh, middle 30s but it certainly laid the framework for a huge expansion of council housing and under Wheatley and other acts, we still had a million council houses built uh, between the wars. And indeed, on a very large scale, that's the Beckinshire estate, uh, Dagenham, 25,000 homes, 100,000 people that was built in this period. Similar estates, uh, Withamshaw and Manchester, other bits of London were built, but they're also built to a high quality. This is a street scene in Beckinshire. There were these were the, what were called the Tudor Walter houses. They were terraced or semi-detached uh, three-bedroom houses with, again, this kind of sanitation, lavatories, kitchens, heating that wasn't e existing in most housing that people were living in at the time. Very popular, still are. Majority of them have actually been sold in states like this. Um, but the other issue was what to do about slum clearance and slum housing. And 
there, the issue was that even these houses with subsidy were not that affordable for people who are right at the bottom. And this is a continuing issue in the history of council housing. One of the things about this type of council housing, we think back how council housing was created in the 30s, was it was very much an aspirational tenure. People really wanted to move from you know, private rented housing to this sort of housing. They were very proud when they were able to. And it was a mixed tenure. It was something where middle class people, skilled working class people, all wanted to move to this. And it was a much different condition. So people were actually inspected by representatives of the council to see if their standards were up to coming into council housing. The housewives were visited to check that they kept their house clean enough. And after they arrived, the rent collectors also went around and made sure everyone had a nice front garden. So very much paternalistic, but very much kind of preserved the idea that council housing was, was something special and that people you know, had to be deserving to get it. So this did create an issue when councils felt the wrong sort of people might be coming in. So this is the a letter to new tenants from this, who are about to be rehoused from slum clearance estates in Bristol, um, which is trying to explain that, you know, you have lived among vermin, but there'll be no excuse now if you don't keep your house neat and tidy. Uh, this sounds a lot, but it isn't going to be all work the housewife, for the housewife. Assumption always it was the housewife who was the person doing all this. Uh, the new house will be easy to keep clean and be well worth looking after. So there's this idea that council housing, you had pride, you wanted to encourage it, and you know, the new people coming in had to fit in with the sort of existing norm. So it was a very much an aspirational tenure. And indeed, in the post-war, I mean, if anything, after World War II, this belief that council housing was the solution to the housing problem got stronger. Of course, in the war, we had half a million homes damaged or destroyed as well. So the housing shortage, as well as no house being built, so the housing shortage was even greater. I mean, the Blitz, mainly in London, but many other large cities were affected as well. So, as we know, this was when the idea of the welfare state was created. The Beveridge Report, 1942, identified five giants that now the new welfare state, the cradle and the grave, should tackle. Want, idleness, ignorance, illness, and squalor. Squalor being people still living in slums, of which there were still many there. And so as a result of that, the priority of the Labour government, when all these were legislation, different legislation was passed, as you can see, for all of those, education, national insurance, the NHS, um, right to full employment, but the Labour government's priority actually was in 1945 to build more council housing. And Nye Bevan, who's the Minister of How, uh, Housing, very much, uh, that was his goal. Of course, he also had a few other things on his plate, like creating the National Health Service as well. Um, but it was definitely the drive of the Labour government. This is what they're going to do. And indeed, uh, they were going to do it without involvement in the private sector. What's interesting in this period to me is that the Conservatives, Harold Macmillan being the, next, the Conservative Housing Minister, embraced the same goal. They also saw the need for the public sector to intervene <coughs> to abolish the housing shortage and abolish the slums. So Labour's post-war housing plan was not only to expand the amount of council housing, to build it to a new higher standard, controversially with two lavatories, one downstairs and one upstairs, which uh, proved a huge debate within the Labour Party. Private house building was sharply restricted. You could only build if you had a permit. Um, 
But a big issue just as after World War I was a shortage of labor and materials. Um, one of the reasons for the shortage of labor was that Britain still had an empire to defend and demobilization in Britain was quite slow, particularly compared to the US. So there's a huge argument between Ernest Bevan, the foreign secretary, who wanted to keep all the troops in places like Singapore, the Middle East, and Nye Bevan, who wanted those soldiers back because many of them would end up being working in the construction industry. There were also big economic crises in the Labour government, particularly in 47, when the government had to limit imports, and 49 when they devalued. And this made it again difficult, both because less money went into housing and because a lot of the raw materials, like timber, had to be imported. So Bevan not, never quite achieved his goal, the amount of housing he wanted to build. And of course, at the same time, he was very involved in the battle to create the NHS, which, in contrast to the council housing system, has endured. So it's an interesting balance where both of these were very controversial when they were introduced. One now, I think we still accept. Uh, I don't think anyone's really politically saying we're going to abolish the NHS because it's socialized medicine, as people argue in the US. But council housing, we had a similar thing that was established 30 years before, but changed. But not in this period. In this period, the conservatives basically tried to outbid labor by saying, well, labor said you'll build 200,000 homes. We'll build 300,000 homes per year. And in fact, they exceeded that target by 1954, after winning the 51 election, partly because they did lower standards, build smaller houses, and they there was a relaxation of building and rationing, so there was a continual uh, boom in private building as well. And gradually, the shift again moved towards mainly building or building more to replace slums and do slum clearance, rather than building general needs housing. I mean, Bevan's idea was that council housing should be for all. His famous quote was, it should be like a Welsh village where the doctor, the butcher, the baker, the miner all live next to each other, and this is the sort of world we want to create. Under the Conservatives, that wasn't quite so true, and particularly one of the parts of the housing drive that had some negative consequences was trying to find shortcuts through using industrial materials, building high-rise blocks, which attracted extra subsidy and housing which in the end proved not that satisfactory and part of the sort of numbers at all costs. But on the other hand, this was a period again where we had one of the most interesting and, and in some ways inspiring uh, parts of the housing drive was the creation of new towns. So we had a million people rehoused in these new towns. This is Welland Garden City. And it was you know, a time where there was a tremendous idealism about the kind of housing you could create in the public sector. So now just, just to review what this meant. So I'm going I'm to put these graphs up several times. But this time, let's just look at the first half of the graph, the period from the 1940s to the 1960s. And what you could see there is, first of all, at the beginning, no private sector housing was built, but the huge increase in public sector housing, which is the, uh, not the blue, but the sort of reddish pit, which rapidly increased until the 1960s, where we were building nearly 350,000 houses in the UK, never total we've never reached before, of which somewhat less than half were council housing and half were uh, private sector housing. So what we had for that period was this huge ramping up under both parties of building. 
we began to get problems in the 70s, as we'll see by the time we got to the next period, complete change. There was no council housing built after the, the right to buy, and as you can see, the private sector did not take up the slack. But now what I'd like to go on to, we've talked about how private renting really the decline of private renting was the key to understanding why there was a political consensus on building more council housing. Now what I want to talk about is the consensus that emerged about owner-occupation and how that happened because I think we too much assume that again it's a given that we all wanted to be owner-occupiers and that this is the natural state of affairs uh, of everyone in Britain forever and I think you need to go back a bit of history uh, to question that. So the first time really owner-occupation became an important factor in British housing was the 1930s and it wasn't something which a government was particularly promoting, it was the result of various decisions by the, by the private sector. I mean we had had a suburban idea that people wanted to live in cottages not in big cities, they wanted their house not a flat, but that didn't necessarily imply anything about what the tenure of that should be and indeed council housing also aspired to, as we saw, garden cities itself but in the 30s, we had really the unexpected growth of owner-occupation, particularly among middle-class people in London. And why was that? There were several factors, really. One was, ironically, the crisis of 1931 also meant interest rates were cut and were much lower. At the same time, the building society movement, which had been very local, became national people like the Abbey Building Society, now the, then the Abbey National, Nationwide, all these building societies had been tiny, they grew very fast, again people were switching money into that sort of investment and at the same time speculative builders were um, now emerging who wanted to build large housing estates in the outskirts of the city, particularly as we said Metroland being the name for the new estates built places like Amersham and Chesham where the metropolitan line stretched out into the countryside now and with the depression actually house prices again started dropping so again house prices dropped around 250-300 pounds mortgages were very low and so there were, were and um, deposits were dropped as well so finance was really the key to this initial growth of owner occupation in the 1930s and here's an ad for the Abbey Road, London's largest building society and they were all kind of, again, housing associations which had been uh, dispersed particularly among working class communities in the north now became concentrated in, in, in the larger ones in London. So what was the conservative attitude? Well, in 1946, uh, Anthony Eden, replying to Labour's policy, did stake out the conservative position that the ownership of property is not a crime but a reward, a right and a responsibility that must be shared equitably among all citizens but there wasn't much practical proposals within that, that was a sort of aspiration. The preconditions for the growth of owner occupation were really something that only happened in the 60s and what was that? A consumer society where people wanted to have somewhere where they could display their material possessions, but also higher incomes. For the first time we started in the 15s and 60s to get substantial growth of real incomes for working class as well as middle class people. And I think one of the key things, really important, was the attitude to borrowing. So people might have wanted to be owner-occupiers, but many people were not sure they wanted to get a big debt, a mortgage debt. 
the generation who grew up in the Depression. And what we had then was both a change in attitudes and a huge expansion of the availability of credit, both credit cards and mortgages. And the result was the first house price boom of the 60s and 70s, which then very much encouraged people to see housing investments and something if you didn't get on the housing ladder, you're going to find it very difficult to do so later. So I think one of the most interesting things I found was looking at the first uh, issue of which, which devoted itself to house purchase, which wasn't until 1968. Mortgages used to be thought of as a burden and a shameful one at that. Some people still see them this way. Poor wretch, they say, look at him, three kids and a mortgage. The truth is, if you've got a mortgage, you're privileged. So don't, we don't feel too cut up about the problems that people already have mortgage. We are here to t tell you, we're more bothered about the people who don't have one. So there was really, the idea that you should get a mortgage for housing wasn't something that came inherently to people. It was something that really came about, as, uh, as I call it, constructed advertising, advice columns, and so forth. So it, it was a complete change, really, in attitude. Um, and of course, you did have huge increase in mortgages. Banks came in, building societies where it used to be you had to save for five years, you had to be interviewed by the bank manager. If you weren't a married couple, you couldn't get a mortgage. This all changed, and deposits were lowered, restrictions were lowered, and the Bank of England's policy of restricting mortgages by uh, putting out what's called a course of all was abandoned. So the result was soaring house price. Now this is what, uh, 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 is adjusted for inflation, because if you take it without inflation, it goes like that. But this is even adjusted for inflation. You can see the booms. The first boom in the 70s, then an even bigger one in the 80s. And then from the end of the 90s, things really started to take off until the financial crisis, which is that little dip there in 2008. At the same time, the 70s were characterized by council housing being under attack and the strain showing. What were the critiques of council housing? First of all, design faults and construction faults. Secondly, the idea that they were badly planned, that people were being put on overspill estates that they didn't want to be on. Thirdly, the problem that they became too expensive. And finally, the problem of management. So the most famous example of this is the Ronin Point disaster in 1968, where a tower block partially collapsed because of a gas explosion in one of the flats. This was part of the industrialized building systems that had been used, but it really symbolized the opposition to council housing as a tenure that people wanted to live in. There was an interesting newspaper coverage of this really dramatically changed in the 50s and early 60s, Generally, most coverage of building more high-rise flats to beat this housing charge was pro, but dramatic change in the late 60s where complete switch of attitudes in, in the press. And also, of course, the other thing was the number of articles on this. Suddenly, this became front-page news in all the newspapers, many, many more articles about it. But it was somewhat deceptive because there were only really 47% of flats in London were being built at high-rise, but the rest of the country, hardly any. But it was very much more visible in London. The other thing is modernism itself was under fire. This is Le Corbusier in his modern style. And there's an argument that, you know, this was terrible. People didn't want to live in this kind of housing. And additionally, some of the academics from quite early on were arguing that people, for example, in the East End didn't want to leave their kinship groups, their friends and neighbors and these new towns were soulless. And there was a third argument that this was really, you know, inherently, you could, these were non-defensible spaces. 
the sort of building of council housing. Now, a lot of recent work has looked at whether people really were that disillusioned by leaving their parents' one-room uh, private rented flat to go live in a nice suburb of Debden. And it's certainly a mixed picture. I mean, a lot of people didn't like nosy neighbors. A lot of people wanted the space. So, I mean, there were some issues in these estates. Sometimes they got worse. But I think this belief, there was a sort of idea, and it's part of the whole affluent worker culture, that, you know, people didn't really want this. They just, you know, they wanted sort of the, the, the keep the links. And, and I think it's something which, you know, was certainly overstated. The third crisis was council housing itself was too expensive because of high inflation. And this was true, that the Wheatley system depended on a fixed rate of subsidy and low inflation. We entered in the 70s a period of very high inflation, high borrowing costs, and this seemed to make the price of council housing unaffordable. In fact, because of what's called front-loading, although the debts initially went up, they also fell very fast because each year inflation eroded the value of those debts. So this was essentially a temporary problem. But Nevertheless, it was seen as a huge threat in the period of economic crisis in the 70s. And finally, we had council management itself under pressure because people felt council housing, uh, many council tenants began to feel they didn't want these petty rules and restrictions. There was a drawing back from the kind of intense oversight. So council sense lost a little bit of control over their estates, but also the issue of who should deserve and get council housing changed with needs-based housing the Private Rented uh, and, and uh, Homeless Persons Act. Now, these were good things in terms of uh, needs, but they did create issues for local people who felt they or their family members should get priority. And the result was the social composition and social status of council housing was changing, becoming less of an aspirational tenure. So how did we get to selling of council housing? Well, in 1971, the first time half of the British households were in owner occupation. This was a kind of turning point perceived by all the political parties to be so. And both Mrs. Thatcher and the Conservatives and Harold Wilson and Labour tried to think of what they should do. And council house sales was in both of their minds. So the Labour government began internal discussions on what to offer to this group of their electorate who they felt they hadn't appealed enough to. And the Prime Minister's policy unit actually developed a quite elaborate plan to uh, introduced the sale of council housing on a wide-scale basis, but with some conditions, particularly that if people left that council housing, they have to resell it to the council, have council write a first refusal. Although this seemed politically advantageous, Labour rejected this essentially because local authorities, local Labour authorities, felt their role had been building council housing and take that away from them would take their political base. The Conservatives, were prepared to be even more dramatic. Peter Walker initially proposed, let's just give all council houses away. <laughs> People paid for them through their rents, so why shouldn't they just have them? This was a bit radical, even for Mrs. Thatcher, who <laughs> in cabinet said, or in the shadow cabinet said, what would our people who struggle to buy their weights homes after many years of saving say about that? Um, but in the, at that point, I mean, this is 74, the Conservatives had all sorts of ideas what to do about helping on Iraq. There's one thing which Mrs. Thatcher reluctantly agreed to was they announced in the 74 election they would freeze interest rates on private mortgages. So mortgages rates were going up to 11, 12 percent. They said, we'll guarantee anyone only has to pay 9 percent, which you can imagine an open-ended commitment how expensive that actually would have been if they had ever done it. 
But by 1979, they'd focused on the idea of selling council houses as a central policy. That wasn't so much Mrs. Thatcher, but Michael Heseltine, who has a more uh, centrist reputation. But this was his big idea. And again, this is the sort of, again, the justification. It was a, the bedrock of the new ideology of Thatcherism of self-help. And it was a key pledge in the 1979 election victory. And in some ways, it was very successful in terms of its electoral success. All council towns were given the right to buy steep discounts. So it was incredibly advantageous, up to 50% off the valuation of the house. And draconian powers to take over any local councils who didn't, uh, wouldn't agree to do this. So in a sense, it was the beginning of the end of the autonomy of local government to some extent. Many other things followed in terms of central government control over local government. And the right to buy also abolished the system of rent control. Landlords now could evict pretty much at will under shorthold tenancies, and councils were actually forbidden from building any more council housing. This is because the Treasury saw this measure not just helping council tenants, but helping the government finances, which it absolutely did, because the receipts of council house sales, controversially, went straight to the Treasury for tax cuts, not back in the housing system. With no other housing being built, the bill for the government went down. So it both saved money and was politically popular, which is a rare combination in the age of austerity. But it wasn't just the Conservatives. Labour also carried on selling council houses. Indeed, as you can see, although they sold slightly more council houses under Labour, they actually received more capital receipts than the Conservatives had. So we really had a new political consensus that housing, the right to buy housing was not anymore the same central provision of the state. And a new, the, the new body that's supposed to do it was housing associations. Some of this funded by government grants, somewhat funded with mixed development with private sector, and again, increasingly the idea that private developers could be forced to build subsidized housing by so-called Section 106 planning agreements. But this didn't really work that well. The bright red line is the amount of housing built under the various housing association and Section 106 agreements. And as you can see, it came nowhere near to the kind of volume by a factor of 10 of the previous system. So what we really ended up with is owner occupation continuing to grow. And of course, I should mention in terms of the housing, the, the housing finance system, owner occupation had more and more tax advantages. Schedule A, there was a system originally, Schedule A, a few of you may remember this, where council, where owner occupation was taxed if it was rental housing, which was quite a lot eventually. That was abolished, but mortgage interest tax relief was kept until 2000. But overall, looking at all the different subsidies, recent calculations suggested that uh, uh, owner occupation received about 110 billion pounds a year in various kinds of tax subsidies and so forth, as opposed to now maybe five billion in council housing building and 15 billion in housing benefits. So there's enormous disparity in how we're subsidizing uh, owner occupation and other tenures. But the question is, has this worked really? So although the right to buy did make more people, 2.5 more people owner occupiers, and it did cut government borrowing, and it was very politically popular in beginning the shift of working class voters from always voting Labour towards the Conservatives. But on the other hand, it did mean the social housing sector itself 
was very much changed into a sector where most people weren't working, uh, were either older, disabled, single parents, where private housing building had not taken up the slack, so house price inflation, as we saw, increased, and those who couldn't get on the housing ladder faced higher costs and limited access. So what are the challenges we have now? It's a question, owner-occupation peaked in the mid-2000s and is now back down to 63%, the amount it was just after the introduction of council house sales. And look at the next generation, the rate of ownership among young people under 40 is far lower than it was in past uh, cohorts. Land is another huge problem in any further growth. And the idea that we could subsidize, keep subsidizing owner occupation by giving more uh, by extra government help for deposits for uh, first-time buyers hasn't really worked because it's just pushed up house prices. And we haven't really done anything to get rid of the accumulated housing shortage, which is both cost but also a distributional problem. Private renting also hasn't really solved the housing crisis. Uh, the lack of security of tenure means it's the most unpopular tenant tenancy. 92% of people in private renting would like to get out of it. 98% of people in owner occupation would like to stay in it, and something like two-thirds of people in council housing would like to stay in it. So private renting sector is not uh, really doesn't seem to be an answer. And in fact, its increase was mainly driven by buy-to-let small landlords, something which is now the government is running back on. And it still has the poorest conditions and least regulation. So what about council housing? The problem we have here now is it's no longer an aspirational ten tenure. People who are in the private rented sector, by and large, as opposed to 30 or 50 years ago, don't think the answer is getting into council housing. And indeed, now many councils themselves would lack the capacity anymore to actually build at scale. Housing associations have some of that. But also, in a sense, we now have cheaper interest rates, so we could subsidize more housing. But that hasn't happened because government austerity cuts mean we very much restrict how much uh, government's going to lend to councils. And we do need to think of how the local central government relations might change and also how residents and councils would interact if we did try to expand council housing. So I think, just a quick summary, council housing itself was created of a long struggle between landlords and tenants and in a very political, uh, uh, really a political movement. By the interwar years, though, there was a consensus that emerged. We should build state housing. That consensus was challenged by the growth of owner-occupation and problems in the council set. Uh, sector. The new consensus now, the complete bias to owner occupation, now seems to have reached its natural limits. So the question really is, especially for the next generation, do we have to invent new housing policies? And if so, what will they be? So, answers next week. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>